Welcome to the Wellcast. The world has a lot to say. We're bringing a biblical perspective to those conversations. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Wellcast. We are so grateful for you uh, listening to us and, and grateful for those of you who have uh, subscribed and shared with your friends. We're grateful for that. Uh, we are joined uh, th- today by our lead pastor here at the Well Community Church, uh, a guy who is a good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Brad Bell. So welcome, Brad. We're glad to have you Thank here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and we have a guest with us today. Uh, I I would say probably the most expert we've had on the podcast out of all the episodes. Uh, why don't you introduce our guest today? Yeah, no, delighted to. So uh, the gentleman joining us today is a professor of biblical studies at Boyce College, which is connected to uh, Southern Theological, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Uh, he serves as one of the preaching pastors at his church there, Kenwood Baptist Church. His academic interests have focused on sexual ethics and the Bible, and he's a published author. He wrote a book in 2013 called What is the Meaning of Sex, followed by in 2015 a book entitled Transforming Homosexuality, What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change. He's also the president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, as well as one of the original authors of the National Statement on Biblical Sexuality. He's also a dear friend, man who I had the privilege of going through some grad school work with there in Dallas Seminary, and uh, really delighted to have him here with us, Denny Burke, joining us here today. There's probably, Denny, there's probably some some great stories uh, that I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear about Brad's, but, but we don't have time for that today. <laughs> they can't be told. They can't be told. That's good. That's right. Thank That's you. Good. Thank you for keeping that between us. <laughs> Well, Denny, welcome. We're glad to have you, like Brad said. And today we're talking about the topic of biblical sexuality. And it's, I mean, you can't, you can't throw a stone without hitting somebody that's, that's talking about this. And, and so, you know, as we get into the, the topic and the conversation today, uh, why does this conversation matter in today's world? Like, why should we engage in this? It's so easy for us to go, to throw up our hands and go, it's so much easier just to stay quiet and not say anything. Why should we engage? You kind of don't have a choice at this point because it's the conversation that's coming to you, whether you want to have it or not. And it's not just going to be a conversation. It's going to be intersecting your life. Um, you're going to have a friend. You're going to have a family member who is dealing with same-sex attraction. Um, if you're paying attention to statistics and what's going on in the culture today, you're going to know a student, maybe have a child who's dealing with gender identity issues you're gonna, it's going to fall to you as a Christian to be able to speak faithfully and biblically mm-hmm. and helpfully into some very difficult situations. So you don't have to go looking for this conversation. It's coming to you, and it's going to be in your front yard if it's not already. Yeah, and Brad, we're, we're talking about this in our church for a reason. Tell us a little bit about your heart behind you know, bringing Denny in and, and uh, having this conversation on, on a on on the scale at least that's that's our church starting to talk about what's important surrounding this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, as a church, um, as elders, we're always kind of looking around going, okay, how are we doing as a body? What are the issues that are impacting our culture and therefore Im- impacting the folks who attend our church? And what is our responsibility as we lead people through these, you know, just these times of interesting cultural intersections of faith? And we just felt like this issue of sexuality is one that I think is uh, kind of to Denny's point, um, not a, not a peripheral issue anymore. It's now something that we're facing um, in every aspect and sphere of our church. Um, we're watching our young people especially, so young adults, high schoolers, middle schoolers, uh, even the older elementary grades that are interacting with concepts that, that 10, 20 years ago they would have never interacted with, dealing with conversations that they would have never dealt with uh, in terms of like their grandparents would have never thought about it in terms of what's my gender and is it same or different than my biological sex and um, all of the information that's out there. I mean, if the winner of the debate, whatever the issue is, uh, is based sheerly on volume of information, uh, then we are losing this battle on sexuality big time because of the massive information uh, that's coming on TikTok and and, uh, Instagram and YouTube and the other social media sites. So we just felt like as a church, boy, if we don't drop the plumb line of truth to say, well, what does God's word say 
about the issue of sexuality and, and what is God's design and what is God's best, if we don't say it, not only are we not able to be faithful Christians because we're not even sure what God said, so how can we live it out, yeah. uh, but now we're not a good witness to our community that's looking for gospel hope, but if we're not presenting it, if we look just like the culture, then we've lost our distinction. There's no city on a hill mm-hmm. as it relates to sexuality, and we really felt like we wanted to sort of light that lamp, if you will, and put a little beacon of hope in our city to say, hey, in the midst of the chaos, if you're looking for a place to find some hope and some truth, it may not always feel good, but hope and truth, we, we'd love to be there when you need it. Yeah, I love it. And, that, and I'm so grateful that we're we're engaging that conversation as a church and and having Denny here is such a big part of that. I know for, for me, I'm entering, uh, we've our oldest is just starting seventh grade. And so we're having the conversation in our home, man, Sixth grade elementary school life is so different than junior high life. And so we're asking the question, what are the things that we need to be aware of for the first time in our parenting lives to, to prepare our kids for secondary education? What are, what are some of the things that you would tell to a parent that uh, is, is in the, are in the same, they're in the same shoes that, that I'm in? You know, they're getting ready to, to send what feels like their kids into a, a lion's den, really. Yeah, I think all parents are a little bit behind the eight ball on this, especially Christian parents who are trying to form their kids into the image of Christ. They're trying to disciple them so that they're walking faithfully with the Lord and what his word says. Because these issues have come up in a lot of ways, the church has been caught flat-footed on this, Mm -hmm. and they're thinking through ideas and terms that have never occurred to them before. So the one thing I would want to say to parents is, look, you don't have to take, you know, a a PhD in apologetics to get yourself prepared for parenting. You just need to be committed to scripture and then being committed to knowing what it is that your kids are facing and just understanding that you're not dealing with a neutral public square anymore, which means you're not dealing with a neutral public school system anymore. Um, you're, you're dealing with institutions that are decidedly lining up behind a new gender and sexuality ideology you need to know what that is. You need to know what the influences are coming to your children, and you need to be able to address that yeah. because your children are going to be catechized um, by the culture, yeah. and you have got your work cut out for you in, to, to get them catechized in, in Scripture. So, um, so for parents, I just want to say, look, it, this, don't be overwhelmed by this, but do get yourself ready and read in a little bit to the issue so that you can, you can help uh, your children, because they're they're facing this. Yeah. Um, they are they are getting this from just every other corner of their existence besides church, probably. If they're participating in social media, if they're watching television, if they're you know it, 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 at their school, um, if when they grow up and get a job, it'll be the HR department. It is everywhere right now. And so you've got to be getting them ready for this. Yeah. And it used to be, I think that you you could say, well, at least the medical profession is a safe place, like the medical field. But you know what? We're dealing with situations now and even hearing stories where uh, that's no longer a neutral profession, where you're talking about affirming some of these uh, gender identity issues with young people at an early, early age, even moving very aggressively to hormone blockers and surgeries and things that literally I think parents would, would kind of be uh, blind to. So not only is there a sense of, uh, you mentioned catechize, it's, there's an indoctrination that's happening yeah. in a local schools and, and even in the medical profession. So I think I would just sort of repeat that and say, I think parents do need to be informed. The other thing I might add is I think parents need to be first into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, don't be naive uh, to young parents. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously parenting two teenage daughters and I don't want to be naive to what they're experiencing or not experiencing because they are seeing more that I'm probably aware of, certainly, and comfortable with as well. And so I think for parents to uh, get educated and then have those conversations with your kids, because if you can create a safe place where your kids can process things with you, that's ideal. Unfortunately, not every kid is going to want to process their sexuality with their parent. But if you could at least, you know, open that door for them, I think that would be healthy. And maybe one more thought that came to my head is, is we need to define the narrative earlier than we think we do. Because we're we're waiting. I have parents in our church who are going, my, my kid's in seventh grade. Is this the right time to have the talk? Ooh, I'm like, yeah. no, <laughs> it's not right. the right time. You miss you miss the right time. Not to say if you if you haven't started by that time, you can't catch up. But but these kids are dealing with sexual things 
third, fourth, fifth grade, and we got to start defining the narrative a little a little sooner. Now, we we talk a lot around the well about proximity. It's really important to uh, to have proximity to people as you engage with them. And I know you know all three of us are are living in the world where we're engaging in this conversation on a on a pretty regular basis. What do what do your relationships look like? What does proximity look like uh, when you're talking about people who might think differently than you do? Um, I'd say at every level of proximity, I've got you know friends that I grew up with who were dealing with these issues, people that I've just met as acquaintances, people in our church that are um, dealing with these issues. So, um, and I, I'm a pastor at our church. So, yeah, I mean, I don't. I guess every level of proximity is is where uh, is where I am on this. Um, I do think um, proximity determines um, your responsibility to engage mm. to a certain extent. Um, you can't fix everything, but certainly the areas of your life where the Lord's giving given you a stewardship, um, you do have to be involved and you have to be able to speak faithfully and, and, and truthfully. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of where where I am on it. And you even you even mentioned earlier that I mean you have you you debate you know other other yeah, theologians yeah. or people who who are in, engaged in the conversation, and and you are able, which I love, to count them as friends. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the challenges right now, and especially in the evangelical movement, is that we're not just dealing with ideas from the outside and having disagreements with the world. That's true. That's not the only thing that's going on because as we're processing things, you're seeing the church trying to find its voice and come up with a unified answer. You know, uh, I think some of the church's deepest doctrines, obviously, if you look at church history, are worked out at the times of greatest conflict. Mm. I think we're in that moment right now. And you're seeing a, even a tussle within what otherwise we would have thought of as more fundamental evangelical Christianity not everybody's on the same page. And over the last 10 years, you've seen a ton of con, uh, conversation amongst people who would say that they believe in the authority of Scripture, trying to come to some agreement about what Scripture says and how it applies to homosexuality, gender identity. And um, we're not all in the same place on on those things. And so I do have some people who are on the other side. I'm not trying to name names in here, but I mean, there's there are people, authors that um, who would be regarded within the evangelical movement that I, I disagree with. And I think theologically, pastorally, they're moving in the, in the wrong direction on this. My hope and my prayer is that over time, we would see some sort of unity and, uh, and agreement because the issues are that important. Um, you know, I, I, I've said this once, I'll say it again. We are not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Mm. When we're talking about what to think about same-sex attraction, for example. We're talking about real people's lives, about what it means to walk faithfully with Christ when you're having this experience. What, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to think? What does faithfulness look like? And so you've got people who are under the banner of evangelical right now who are saying different things about that. So yeah, I've got friends who are on all sides of this, um, and uh, that's ongoing. Yeah, and you were apart from what I... Uh from what I recall, you were part of the early movement of trying to find some unity together as the body as it relates to this issue. So you were one of the original authors of that Nashville statement, a statement written um, to sort of drop a, a definitive, this is the historic Christian faith's view. This is Orthodox Christianity's view of the issue of sexuality. Uh, there was a number of people that were part of that with you. Tell us a little bit about that, just that process of why write the Nashville Statement, what is the Nashville Statement, and who's participated in that, both from an editing standpoint and then an affirmation standpoint of it. Yeah, I mean, the Nashville Statement was born of the desire to state clearly what the Bible says, number one, in answering the um, speculations and falsehoods that are coming from the wider culture. So we want to have a clear statement on marriage, a clear statement on what it means to be male and female. So we want to have clear statements on that. But then we also wanted to address some of the intra-evangelical controversies that are also in play here and that the wider world probably doesn't realize are going on, but, th but that are happening. And so one of the evangelical, intra-evangelical, intramural discussions that evangelicals have been having 
is about this idea of identity, about the moral status of same-sex attraction and orientation. Um, that's where you've seen uh, people be at, at, at loggerheads. And so um, you, you'll see, for example, some people call themselves celibate gay Christians. And um, it's hard to, I don't want to overgeneralize here because all those who fall under that moniker, it, it's hard to say they all hold to the same thing, but there are at least some with uh, that are flying under that moniker who would say that the identity of you know, a gay Christian is an appropriate way to refer to yourself as a Christian. The identity itself is morally indifferent. And so, sure, you can talk about being a gay Christian, inhabit that identity. Some of them have even made the case that you should enter into celibate gay partnerships that are covenanted. So not marriage, but nevertheless, a covenant with someone, two people who are romantically attracted and are same-sex attracted. I think that that's the kind of difference that I'm talking about that we were trying to clarify in the Nashville statement. And um, we were kind of sticking our claim there too, saying, no, you know, what we believe is that, you know, our attractions are morally implicated and um, we would never want to make an identity out of something that's flowing out of the flesh. We certainly wouldn't want to forge a covenant partnership with some, with an attraction that's flowing out of the, the sinful nature and so we were trying to say in the Nashville statement, look, marriage is the union of one man and one woman. We're speaking to those controversies being forced by the outside world. But then we also wanted to say, you know, our attractions are morally implicated. And if you want to struggle, wrestle faithfully as a Christian with those attractions, you don't build or forge an identity out of that attraction. You recognize it as a consequence of the flesh, something that you're trying to crucify and turn away from. And so we tried to clarify that as well in the Nashville statement. So we were trying to do a, a lot in there, um, but but that was that was our heart. Yeah, and as it came out, I mean, we've signed it, included it in our bylaws. There's been, I would assume, thousands of evangelicals that have signed it and and sort of adopted that uh, into their culture as well. But it's not equally accepted in some no, some Christian no. circles. And unfortunately, it we. It, it was interesting because it was called the Nashville Statement just because we happened to meet in Nashville. Well, and wasn't yeah. that kind of modeled after the Chicago Statement of Biblical Yeah, or, you know, from the lesser important non-ecumenical statements to the most important ecumenical statements, you know, creeds of the church from yeah. Nicaea to Constantinople. They're named after places. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not trying to compare the Nashville Statement to Nicaea. I'm just saying that this is a long-established tradition. But anyway, we're in Nashville, so we named it the Nashville Statement, and the word got out. I didn't know this was going to happen. I mean, people, maybe I'm dumb, but I remember leaving the office the day before it released, and I said, you know, I hope maybe somebody writes an article like this, maybe Christianity Today. Well, when we released it, the mayor of Nashville tweeted about it, and it turned into this, it was in everything over the next weeks or week or two. It was in the New York Times, the Washington, it was everywhere, and it became this culture war thing in the, the eyes of the outside world, which was never what it was. It was just a resource for churches to articulate, churches and ministries to articulate a faithful vision of what the Bible teaches about these things. That was our heart in it, was a resource for, for believers um, to be able to articulate what the Bible says, because so many people were thinking about these things for the first time, and we were trying to put biblical categories on everything. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was, that was where this was coming from, but you know... It, it, it was, uh, it was, in my, from what I can see, it was probably one of the last um, widely signed on to evangelical statements. I think there's been a fracturing within evangelicalism since 2016, even more so since 2020. Um, but I mean, you know, John MacArthur signed it. Uh, James, Jim Dobson signed it. Russell Moore signed it. I mean, you, you just go through all of these these names, uh, Albert Moeller, you know, uh, Wayne Grudem, um, there were just so many people who signed on in support of that. Um, that it's hard to imagine getting so many people together now, you know, right. on, on, on a similar effort, but, but they did then and everybody was, you know, seeing this together. Well, the, the Nashville statement's a good segue. Uh, let's, let's jump in and, and talk a little bit about what it means to hold this biblical view of sexuality that we're talking about. Uh, there's a, a lot of people out there who would who would say, you know, most mostly in the world, but some in the church who would say, 
our our biblical view of sexuality, what the Bible actually says about sexuality promotes hate. Uh, what would your response be to that? And, and how do we, how do we um, uh, navigate that conversation? Because that's, that's a conversation our people are having with, with people on the opposite side. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I would want to say is that we need to communicate to people what Christianity Therefore, what the Bible teaches about what love and hate actually are. The Bible teaches that love always rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. Love always rejoices in the truth. That message and that um, communication from the Bible is at loggerheads with what the world defines as love because the world now has moved into a definition of love that says it's unconditional affirmation. Love is unconditional affirmation. That's what unconditional love is. And by that definition, there are a lot of people in the Bible Jesus wouldn't have loved. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Because he was not affirming everything that he saw. Right. You know, he loved all these people, but he wasn't affirming everything. So that definition doesn't work. And actually, most people, when it comes to the sexuality conversation where they're insisting on unconditional affirmation, they actually don't practice that in other areas or on other issues. They don't do unconditional affirmation, right. but no. they're holding that out. So it's really important for Christians to understand, look, don't don't let yourself get backed into a corner of a kind of a secular view of what love is. Because if you adopt, it means unconditional affirmation. You're going to find yourself in some really unbiblical ba- places really, really quick. Now, um, so, so for the world, I would want to communicate that to them. I want Christians to know that as well. You've got to understand that love always rejoices in the truth. So, you know, I I went to the doctor some years back because there was this place on my back that was looking kind of funny. And so I went to the doctor, the dermatologist. He said, you've got a place on there. It's precancerous. We got to move it, remove it. And then I've got to test it to see if it's how extensive it is. And I got to tell you, but the, the, between those doctor visits was really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Finding out what he removed and what it actually was, it was really uncomfortable. He would have been doing me no favors to withhold from me the truth of what was there. Um, it was no favors done to me. It, it, he could have made me feel better by saying, oh, everything's fine, but I wouldn't have been better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we, we can't, when it, when it comes to these important realities, we have to be able to talk to each other, even if at the end of the day, we disagree with each other. Sure. We at least have to hear each other out and in good faith be able to share uh, what, what the truth truth is. And it's just not going to always be unconditional affirmation. Sometimes there's going to be hard things that we have to say, and that's just a part of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Yeah, can I jump in here just for a sec? So I think sometimes, too, what happens is um, the community outside of faith, right, so a non-believing community, hears a biblical view of sexuality and what they assume is we're trying to tell them what they should or should not do in their bedrooms or wherever else, right? And I think that's in some ways a misnomer because the the goal of the church in teaching a biblical view of sexuality is inviting those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ to walk faithfully with the revealed Word of God. And in doing so, then we put the gospel on display for the non-believing community to see. So it's really not—a biblical view of sexuality is not a believer trying to tell a non-believer— what they're doing is right or wrong per se. It's us saying, hey, there may be a better way for you, a healthier way for you, a more life-giving way for you in Jesus. But to a person who has yet to trust in Jesus Jesus Christ, they don't have the Spirit of God in them. They are unable to do the very things that the biblical model is inviting them to live by. You know, yeah. So in some ways, their faith in Christ is the priority, not their morality. Their sexuality is a, will be a byproduct of their faith and so I think clarifying that a little bit is, is important because the non-believing community says, well, you're teaching that homosexuality is, is a sin. That's hate. That's violence. It's neither hate nor violence. In fact, it's actually an act of love because what we're saying to you is, um, kind of to your point with the thing on your back, we love you enough that you may not be aware of what's happening, but because we love you enough, we want to show you what's happening, and then you get to make a determination from there as to what you want to do with it, but the highest uh, expression of love is being honest, speaking the truth in love. So in some of the wider cultural conversations, you know, I think some people think that um, they're going to be, you know, coerced or 
being forced into something, which is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to persuade people. You can't force people to be converted. Right. Um, that That's not what we're trying to do. And we're not trying to get people to just do an external cleanup, you know, stop doing that. Now you're fine. That's not it. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says to all sinners, um, look, you have a need. You are alienated from God. And, you know, we're all sinners. We all have different, but we have different species of sin that we're dealing with, but we're all sinners. And the message of the gospel is the same to everyone. So there's always going to be, um, everybody's going to have to have conviction of sin and things that they have to deal with. Um, but if you can't, if, if you draw, a, a, you know, a, a circle or, or, or build a big wall around this issue and say, well, you can't speak what the Bible says about, you know, same-sex immorality or even opposite-sex immorality. You can't talk about those things anymore. Um, you're basically greasing the skids for people never to come to know Jesus because that may be the sin that the, the Lord Jesus is dealing with and that, is, that is convic- he's convicting them of. So yeah, it's not, that, it's not mean, loving to not be able to talk about those things anymore. Yeah, and kind of to your point, what did Paul say in Romans, right? He says, I would not have known coveting if the law had, taught, yeah. had not said you yeah. shouldn't covet. So if the, if the churches are going to stop teaching on the hard issues because they're perceived to be offensive to the culture, then yeah, we lose the edge of the gospel. There's no now ministry of conviction of the Spirit of God enlivening the Word of God in somebody's heart to go, oh man, I do need to respond differently to that. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. But I mean, we're bearing witness, right? I mean, even when the church in its own preaching and teaching and worship, you're you're teaching your people, you're forming your people, but that's also a part of a public witness uh, to the community. And... Um, you can't be communicating to the world that you can follow Jesus and pursue sexual immorality. There are people who are saying that in the name of Christ. It's not true. There are people who are saying you can follow follow Jesus, you know, and do any number of things that are contrary to what Jesus said. Jesus actually did not talk that way. Um, he talked about an inner renewal that changes your life, right? And it makes a claim on on your whole life. Um, and so we have to be able to, to speak and to teach that way. I mean, Jesus was kind of, he was very, very stark in the way that he spoke about these things. You know, if any man comes to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and yet he forfeits his soul? And then he would say, you can't serve God and money, right? If, if you love money, you can have that, but you can't have me too. <laughs> you you got to pick. So it's really about what your fundamental love is, and that's going to have a transformational effect on the, on the rest of your life. So, um, you know, that's the message that we're trying to, to communicate here. I've been thinking a little bit about what Denny had said. We did a um, Thursday night, you know, episode or, or um, teaching, I guess, on uh, the issue of the state of confusion of sexuality and how we got here. And he used the illustration of a hammer. Like a hammer has a design. Yep. And that hammer, if you're wanting to strike a nail, uh, is actually really good at that. Like that's what it's for. But if you're using it to get into your car, it's actually not a very good use <laughs> of a hammer. And I think you said even like if somebody's in front of your TV blocking the TV, you could use a hammer yeah. <laughs> to get a clear view of your TV. Sometimes my wife would like to do that, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and what struck me with that, it was a great illustration because you start asking the question, well, in those cases, what is the highest expression of love? Use the hammer however you think the hammer, however you think the hammer should be used. Well, that, that could be catastrophic. I mean, that could cause major damage. Or is it better to ask the first question, what is this hammer actually designed to do? And maybe the most loving thing is to help them understand the design of the hammer that's already in their hand. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Bible, Christianity teaches that our sexuality is like that, right? There is a design woven into our bodies. God's purposes are revealed in male and female bodies. It's a part of God's revelation. And you can use those bodies in ways that are in keeping with that design, or you can use those bodies in ways that are not in keeping with that design. And if you do it and not in keeping with the design, kind of like that hammer, you might achieve some short-term benefit, 
Mm-hmm. It, it might feel right and good. It, you might actually achieve a goal that you were aiming at. You might able to be able to do that for a long time. But eventually, that catches up with you. There's going to be destructive consequences. The, the best of human good and flourishing is not in um, ignoring God's design for our sexuality, but in understanding what it is and living into it. Mm. It's interesting when you say that. You know, It's the short-term pleasure or benefit that I think people are wanting. Like, just give me now. I just want the pleasure now. I don't want to deny myself for the sake of a greater gain later. I'm looking for the quick fix. You know, we live in a culture that really wants to gratify flesh now. And uh, boy, I think there's uh, what comes with that. And this is from personal experience, right? I I came to faith late in college. I lived a very ungodly life Mm. as it relates to my sexuality. And what comes to those quick fix moments is a lot of shame and regret. You know, a lot of scenarios where you look back, you go, man, that caused a lot of pain because the the wages of sin is indeed death. And it's not necessarily always physical death, though physical death death is certainly part of the fall, but even just the spiritual death that you experience of like, man, I was not made for this. I'm I'm doing something's wrong here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the the thing that I observe all around the country, filling churches everywhere, are people who come to church without the deny yourself mentality. Like they come to they they come to church waiting for Jesus to just do things for them. It's the genie mentality, right? Mm-hmm. But the Bible is very clear that we're we're to come to Jesus, and then a, a, an act of discipleship is denying ourselves. But if that's not the culture of the church, then that's where we start to enter in with this division of well, well why should we do, deny ourselves? Yeah. So that's just something I that's an observation I make, and I I just think you know for our listeners. This life of walking with Jesus is a life of denying ourselves. It is, and there are there are riches that we get to enjoy, mostly a relationship with Jesus and His His church. But but this is not an easy life, and we have to embrace that if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus. And it's countercultural because I can go through a drive-through and get a grande, half sweet, two and a half pump, extra hot decaf. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can just keep going. You've you've probably seen these people, you know, who who order drinks. Like, I get oh the goodness. worst anxiety when I have to order my wife's coffee. I don't, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what it means. I roll the windows down in the car and I go, "You girls order it." I'm not saying <laughs> that. But I guess my point is we're used to having things however we want it. And uh, boy, that's just not the gospel. The go- the gospel bids you come and die. Mhm. You know? Yeah. Well, the good word, though, from Christ is whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to lose his life, save his life, will lose it. Yeah. But whoever loses his life, yeah. will save it. Yeah. Whatever you lay down, you're going to get back and then some. In this life and the next. Yeah. It's 100%. not, it's not, in other words, if, you th- if you're thinking Christianity is a net loss for you, it's not. Yeah. It's net gain. Mm-hmm. It's net gain. Yeah, to, so, to swing back around to the issue of sexuality, uh, you know, to, to say no to your flesh in terms of indulging the flesh outside of God's design is to say yes to God's design, which is in John 10, 10, when Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have abundant. Abundant life is found in keeping with God's design. So if we could learn, well, First Thessalonians, you know, one of the few times in the New American Standard Bible, he says, this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you learn how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like those who don't know God. Mm. Like there's just something to be said about learning by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to control our bodies in a way to honor him. It is a better way of doing life. No regret, no shame, no guilt. And the delight of knowing I'm living in keeping with his design. That's good. How, so how do we, in, in both a hetero and in a same-sex context, how do, how do we distinguish between attraction and the sin of lust? And, and maybe to add on to that, can, can uh, someone be same-sex attracted and still love Jesus? Um, to, let me give you a short answer to the second part first. Can somebody be same-sex attracted and still love Jesus? Yes. Um, there's, they're in my church. Hopefully they're in your church. Yep. Um, um, a person's pattern of temptation doesn't preclude them from being a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you can't single out a, a single sin and say, oh, that particular pattern of temptation means you can't be a Christian. Right. Um, 
if that's the case, then I'm not a Christian. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're all going to have patterns of temptation that we're dealing with. And, but, but that's just the normal Christian struggle. First part of that question though, was what is the difference between lust and same sex attraction? That is a great question. I think the Bible answers it. It doesn't in terms that don't necessarily match the modern categories, but I think this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. So don't do this. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus' teaching is so clear, not just there, but even in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, He's saying that sin is not just a matter of our deeds. It's an issue of our desires. And so that has raised a a question for people. At what point do my desires become sinful? Um, How do I know the difference between a harmless desire and a sinful desire? And what some people would say is that, well, if you didn't choose to feel the desire, then it wasn't sinful. You have to choose to feel the desire, then it's sinful. Um, I don't. I don't think that's really what the Bible teaches, though. Um, Jesus says in in Mark seven that um, you know foolishness, immoralities. Um, it's not what goes into the man that defiles the man. What comes out of the man that defiles the man. For what comes from the heart of man are, and then he lists all these things: sexual immorality, adultery, thief, thieving. Um, you know, just go through the whole list. He says that. He says that stuff's already in your heart. It's already there, and it's not less of, it's not less sinful because it's just naturally in there. So you can't define sin simply as the things that you're, you're choosing to do there because we have the, the Bible teaches we're sinners by nature and by choice. Okay. So we can make sinful choices, but we're also sinful in our nature. So we have to deal with that. So you can't think that if it's just emerging naturally and I didn't choose to feel it, then it's not sinful. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. So some people will say, well, if, it, if the desire is not chosen, it's not sinful. That, that's not, I think, biblical. But what they'll also say is, is that, well, if, as long as it's just not much of a, a very strong desire, then it's, it's not sinful. Well, that, that doesn't really work either. It, it, it's kind of like saying, you know, if, if a man says to his wife, you know, honey, there's this woman at work and... She is really attractive, but you need to know that I only feel sexually attracted to her for 10 seconds out of the week. <laughs> That's not going to fly in my house. Okay, so you that. so you, what wife says, okay, as long as it's only 10 seconds, it's fine. That's not fine. Right. 10 seconds is not fine. Your wife will be offended, and she's right to be offended because no amount of attraction for a woman, not your spouse is okay. That's what Jesus was saying. If you look at a woman to desire her sexually, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So if it's not about what you choose to feel, if it's not about the intensity of what you feel, then what is it? That's where I think Jesus is so masterful there in in Matthew five, because what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us the law. He's teaching us the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, Seventh Commandment, don't commit adultery. And then he's connecting it to the Tenth Commandment, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. Seventh Commandment addresses the deed. The Tenth Commandment, and which is why it's the hardest commandment in some ways, is addressing the desire behind the deeds. And Jesus is saying to all those Jews listening to him, if you think that just your external righteousness is all that this is about, it's not about that. This is about your desires. So the moment, your, uh, the, the moment your desire fixes on an, uh, a forbidden object, so if you begin to desire something, it doesn't matter if you remember choosing to feel it, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter if it's an intense desire or a slight desire, okay? It's the, not the intensity of desire. If, you, if your desire fixes on something that God has forbidden, whatever it is, that would be sinful. That is what Jesus is connecting in Matthew 5. He's connecting the seventh commandment to the, to the 10th commandment. So what that means is that's not just a lesson for gay people. It's a lesson for all of us yeah. because you're not going to understand your heterosexual struggles and sins unless you understand that 
look, it's not, look, I'm not batting a thousand if I just stay out of bed with the wrong people. Jesus is aiming at your heart. He's making yeah. a disciple of your heart and he wants your heart to be pure. And that, that's what he's calling all of us to. And so what I, what I don't want us to do when it comes to these contested issues around, you know, same-sex attraction, I don't want us to, to, to treat those attractions as if they're different from other illicit desires. Just because it's natural, you know, you, you know some people will testify that they felt, you know, same-sex attractions for as long as they can remember. They don't like it. They didn't invite it. It's just there. You know, I would argue, well, look, it, don't forge an identity on that and understand whenever you feel those attractions for that other person, that's just an occasion to remember what Jesus said. To, look, it, when you feel that desire that you know is fixing on an object that's forbidden, you turn away from it. You, 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 you recognize that's flowing from the flesh. It's not flowing from the spirit. You turn away from it and you walk in faith in Christ. You walk in faithfulness. So the, the reason, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question, and the reason I'm taking so long with this is because I think it's very pa- pra- pastorally important. There are some people who are saying, don't worry about the attractions. They're not morally implicated. And I'm saying, no, we're going to war at the level of the attractions. We're crucifying the flesh. We're putting to death the old man, and we are going to try to walk in newness of the spirit, which means we're, we're concerned about the attractions the attractions, and we're concerned about deeds that might flow from the attractions. But I think that's just what Jesus taught us. Yeah. I mean, if you look at 1 John 1, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And so what you're inviting people into is to walk in the light, not just with deed, but with desire. And and I think what this question really begins to reveal as well, at least from my perspective, uh, is, is kind of a false understanding of the gospel. Because we tend to lean into a very moralistic faith that says, when I do well or do right, God loves me. When I don't, God is disappointed with me. Which means when we have those moments of desire that you are saying are sinful, and I, I agree with you on that, um, not that that matters, but I do, um, that, that we say the desire is sinful, then people sh- uh, heap shame and guilt on themselves. And I said, no, right there, you're, you're failing to understand who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are already fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully known, and fully loved. And so all that is doing is reminding you, oh, yes, I do need the gospel, even today. Yes, I do need Christ. Amen. Yes, I need your grace. What a good reminder, Lord, because I am a redeemed dirtbag. I, I, <laughs> I am a guy who is saved, but the influence of sin and flesh and the old man is still there. God, thank you that you still love me. And we're all in the same boat. hundred percent. doesn't matter the sin issue. Yeah. So I this mean, isn't a, this isn't a gay straight issue. This is anything. Fill in the blank on the temptation. If you find yourself moved in desire for that temptation, praise God, we have the gospel. And it, it brought me, I was thinking of Proverbs four, where the, uh, the author says to watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. It's in those moments, and I've heard you say this a couple times, that we're spring-loaded for sin. It's a great way to put it. And so that we just need to continue to watch over our hearts. Psalm 139, search us, O God, know our hearts, try us, know our anxious thoughts. Because inside of these hearts, man, there's a lot of awful in there still. Mm -hmm. And that's why we continually need the gospel. Can we we define a couple terms for for our listeners? So. You know, I th- I think there are a lot of I think a lot of misunderstandings in the church happen because we're not we're not defining terms, and I think there are other uh, other misunderstandings that happen because we are talking about the same terms. We just don't like it. I mean, it happens both ways. But I want to make sure we we define attraction and and desire as we're using it, uh, and and kind of asking the question: Is that different than admiration? Is there a because I'm I'm literally sitting here processing this as you guys are sharing, and a, a lot of I'm like, amen, amen, amen. But there's a side of me that goes, well, what about admiration? What if I just I, I just recognize, you know, I really I really like that car. Um, I'm not coveting it necessarily. I'm just going that that's a really nice car. Is there a place? And and maybe I'm asking the wrong question, but we'll still explore it uh, anyway. But is there a place for admiration in this conversation where it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily a sin issue? Well, Denny's reaching for a book that he probably wouldn't have uh, <laughs> shown as a self-promotion or a flex. But Denny actually wrote a really good book on transform, called Transforming Homosexuality. 
And uh, I read it the other day, and my wife was in the kitchen when I finished reading it. And as I was done, I just put both hands up in celebration, <laughs> never said a word. She goes, what are you doing? I go, this book is so good. Mm. And so uh, anyway, I don't know if there's insights that you want to bring out from the book, but uh, yeah, what do you and think? By, by the way, I have a co-author in here. So Heath Lambert also wrote, uh, uh, worked on this too. The, the reason I was picking it up was because I, f- I feel like my answer to your question is going to be not sufficient. This whole book really is trying to address this this question mm. what, what what are from a christian perspective what are the ethics of our desire what what do we mean by these terms what do we mean by attraction what do we mean by orientation and then how does the bible even apply to that so if you you know the if i'm trying to reach for a common agreed upon definition of orientation but if you look up like the uh, american psychological association they'll define the term orientation as a person who experiences same-sex attraction for a person of the same sex for um, like six to nine months at least. They won't say that you have an orientation unless it's an enduring mm-hmm. attraction, sexual attraction for a person of the same sex for a certain amount of, of time. And so what you'll hear a lot of um, modern people say who are trying to wed this with Christianity, they'll say, well, you know, when Paul was talking about homosexuality, he didn't know anything about this concept of orientation. That's actually kind of a misnomer. You're 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 sort of um, you're you're miss you're, you're missing the point here, because when when you look at what the American Psychological Association means by orientation, what they're really when when they say attraction, they're really talking about sexual desires, because if you look at the way they define attraction, they define it in terms of what you desire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, so, so the answer is the way I understand their use of the term attraction is it's just a pattern of desire over time. And as we've seen, the Bible doesn't talk, isn't dealing with the term attraction like we use it in English or the term orientation like we use it in English, but it everywhere addresses the term desire, what it is that you want. And the fact that you might have an enduring desire doesn't remove it from the authority of what Jesus said about where our desires come from and how we're supposed to think mm-hmm. about them. So, so the question you asked, what's the difference between desire and attraction? I think functionally they're not different. Okay. There's not a, uh, there's not a morally neutral attraction. You can be attracted to things that God commends and that are good, or you can be attracted to things that are evil. That's not different than saying you can desire things that are good and you can desire things that are evil. I, I don't see a lot of moral space between that. So what de, what defines, though, the goodness or the badness of the attraction or the desire is the object. If the object is good, the desire is good. If the object is bad, the desire is bad. That's why you see, like in First uh, Timothy 3, he who desires to be an overseer desires a good thing. That's the same word for desire there that you see Jesus using in Matthew 5. But it's a good desire because it's fixed on a good object. Jesus is describing a bad desire because it's fixed on a bad object. I think that applies to attractions as well. And an orientation, is it, all that is in the literature is just the persistent experience of a certain pattern of desire. But those desires don't become, you know, morally neutral just because you experience them all the time or because they feel natural to you. Um, I would say this, I'm not same-sex attracted. I don't know what that's like, but I do know what it's like to have temptations arising from my own nature, to have desires fixing on things that I know that are wrong. You know, something happens in the house with my kids and I fly off the handle. And I say a word in anger, and I have to come back and apologize for, you know, I can't go back and say, well, I didn't choose to feel that anger, therefore it wasn't wrong. It, no, it, just because it came naturally from my nature doesn't make it less wrong. It just makes, it just bears witness to my, how deep my need is yeah. uh, for grace and how much I need to, I need the spirit and the hope of the gospel to change me. That's, that's all it's saying. But uh, when it comes to this discussion, you people are kind of wanting to separate out same-sex attractions and treat them differently than we would almost the anatomy of any other kind of sin experience that we have. And that, that's where I think we have to be 
to be careful. Mm. Well, and the irony with that is the church historically had done that in years past and made the issue of same-sex attraction almost a different level of sin. Like you're struggling with gluttony, that's one thing. I'll see you at the potluck. But if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, that's different. And in some ways, it's the same but now flipped, where now you've got uh, those in the LGBTQIA plus community, but trying to reconcile that with their faith, wanting to separate out that sin as different from any other. And I, I think, yeah, you're, you're coming back to the nature of what is the flesh? How is it revealing itself? Each of us have our own tendency or propensity that's unique to us uh, as fallen creatures. And uh, whatever expression of that, um, of that flesh is, uh, that attraction or desire, because the object is moving towards sin, that, that to us then is sin. Yeah, well, as we kind of wrap up, any parting thoughts for this part one of, of a two-part you know, series that we're doing with Denny? Any, any, any parting thoughts that you would throw out there on this topic? Yeah, and just, you know, I do want people who are listening to know that, listen, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was the whole point. So if you're listening to this and you're feeling convicted because you feel like you have patterns of sin that are so intractable that they can't be addressed, there's no way God can deal with me or deal with this, it's just not true. Um, it's not true. Um, Isaiah 59.1 says, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Um, if, if he can reach me, if he can reach you guys, if he can reach the Apostle Paul, he can reach you. Um, so you just need to know that God knows right where you are. The gospel, if you're a sinner, the gospel is for you. Yeah, and I would say to folks, never underestimate the power of your testimony, right? Especially for those that are listening that are followers of Jesus. Um, God has done something remarkable in each and every one of us. It is a miracle that he, by his grace, has awakened a dead heart Mm. and brought it back to life. And so to share that story uh, gives hope for others. It also reminds us to walk in humility. Um, I was sharing with Denny, you know, when I moved away from Fresno and uh, went to uh, Texas, I just said, Lord, I'll go anywhere but Fresno. Just too many ex-girlfriends, too many old guys, you know, here that I used to party with and just a lot of ungodly memories. And yet brought God, by his grace, brought me back here, which is humbling. You know, when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about the thorn in his flesh, mine is that I pastor in Fresno. Mm. And there's a humility that comes with that. There's no arrogance because a lot of people here knew who I was before Jesus. And I I share that simply to say um, our testimonies give others hope because if God can save us, maybe God can save them. And to continue to invite people into that new life in Christ through your humility and brokenness and proclamation of the gospel and how it's changed your life, I think is powerful. So good. Well, this is a a great start to the conversation. I know this is not the end, uh, but thanks for joining us, guys. We'll see you next time on the Wellcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Wellcast. As always, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about us. For more information about The Well Community Church, visit thewellcommunity.org.